Hi, I'm John Wilson. Welcome to These Three, a series in which I talk to artists, musicians, writers, directors, actors, photographers, all sorts of creative people, in fact, about their artistic lives by focusing on three key works. One that they made themselves, that they're particularly proud of. One by somebody else that they wish they'd made. And one that they're working on right now. I'm Kwame Kramer, and I'm going to tell you about the play I wrote, the play I wish I'd written, and the play I'm writing. Kwame, good to see you again. Good to be with you. We've seen you in Casualty. We have seen you on the stage, plays at the National Theatre, yeah. Elmina's Kitchen yeah. and Fix Up, Statement of Regret. Yeah. You did the musical about Bob Marley yeah, yeah. recently, uh, started in Birmingham. And you've also been a director, not just here in Britain, but in America. You were running the Baltimore Centre Stage Theatre and now you're back in London as artistic director of the Young Vic Theatre. But you've picked the play that you're writing, the play that you wish you'd written, the play that you wrote. I mean, in your case, it could have been the song I wrote, <laughs> the song I wish I'd written, or the role. Yeah, but if I'm really to define myself, to myself, I'm a writer. Yeah. So the play is a good way to start. Where, where did you start as a kid looking... And you didn't start out as Kwame. In fact, you were yeah. Ian Roberts, young Correct. Ian Roberts, born Correct. in 1967. At what Correct. point did young Ian yeah. think the arts are possibly a route through life for me? Uh, about seven. You know, it sounds really weird to say that now. But I was a singer and my mother, actually my cousin brought me to a talent contest and, uh, and I won and people were, were like going, oh yeah, you could be great, blah, 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 blah. And I think when people project that on you when you're quite young and give you that uh, much attention, you kind of go, oh, I am good then, or I could be good. And so I think it was at about that age that I went, I think I want to do this. And then continually, really, I just kept refreshing that idea. I got to about 12 and I went, oh no, I really like this. I thought about 16, I was like, no, I really think this is what I have to do for the rest of my life, though it wasn't. But it's writing which really is your route through life, yeah, that is... it is. Um, I, I think when I stopped being a musician when I was about 25, and I was, I was acting, but really at my best as an actor, I was just good. I was never inspirational. It was very mechanical, whereas as a director now, I get to work with actors all the time who are really inspirational, that, that they can relax in a role and just, and just vibe. But it's in my writing that I felt that I could be my true self. My writing replaced the kind of organic nature of, of making music. Writing made me feel... I, I, I do it without thinking about it. I do it because I need to do it. That's really interesting. You talk to so many writers or actors, film directors, and they are very often frustrated musicians. But you put, have you left that behind? Oh, yeah. Are you still frustrated? No, no, not frustrated at all. I'm like, it was, it was then, it was the first chapter. And, and also, my, my son is a music producer, um, my firstborn, and he was better than me at about 18 than I was at my best when I was at 25. And there's something humbling about that, that you kind of go, OK, well, actually, maybe it wasn't for me. Maybe it was for him. May, and also, maybe you can take some pride that you've passed it on yeah, in the genes. Yeah, I feel, I feel really good about it. I feel really good about it. So, no, there's, there's no frustration at all. At what age and why did Ian Roberts become Kwame Kweyama? At about 12, I, I was watching the seminal programme Roots on television and it, there was a scene when Quinta Kinte was being beaten and, and given the name Toby. 
And I, and I remember where I was stood in, the, in, in the, my mother and father's house. And I think I turned to my mother and I said something like, I'm going to do that, mom. I'm going to trace our ancestry and reclaim our African name. I think to which she said something like, yes, thank you, darling. Now go do your homework. <laughs> and, uh, and actually, it wasn't until I was about 18 or 19 and I started reading the autobiography of Malcolm X and then reading the works of Marcus Garvey. And then I was really surprised that these two different points in history, that these two um, African-Caribbean men were talking about racism and uh, identity in the way that, that I was. I was like, how can Malcolm X be growing in the 1940s and experiencing the same level of, of racism that I'm experiencing in the 1970s and 80s? And uh, and I think that, that really meant something, affected my thinking, and, and I went back to my original thought that I didn't think it would be right for me. For anybody else, it's absolutely fine. But for me, to carry the name of someone who once owned someone in my family, it felt incongruous. It felt like my parents had traveled 4,000 miles from the Caribbean to here to give me a first world education. And that and somehow I needed to do the same for my children. I needed to, to give them something that elevated them, that they didn't have to think about the past as much, but could think about the future. Wow, so that's a moment of consciousness, of, of awakening, really. At yeah, the age, huge. At the age of 12... Were you radical and angry? How did it express itself? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I think between 12 and 16, I think my teachers would describe me as low-level disruption in class. And I think mostly that was about me just wanting to always talk, communicate, and me wanting to challenge what I now call structural inequality, what we now look at as institutionalised racism. We didn't have the language for it then. And so I think I was often amid debate probably when I shouldn't be. I think when the anger really kicked in, I think it was between about 19 and about 24. I think and I was a new convert to Pan-Africanism. I was a new convert to the ideas of black consciousness, to the ideas of, of understanding one's history through the lens of Africa and not through the lens of Europe. And I think when you first come across and are told or read about the inhumane transatlantic slave trade and then the deculturalization process when the African arrived from the motherland to a plantation island and, and had to have their names stripped and their culture stripped from them in order to be a beast of burden and then one looked at the history of racism that one also experienced on the streets of Southall and the streets of London in the classroom, that actually that makes you really angry. And I think it wasn't until I was about 24-ish that I, that someone, and I can't remember who, um, said to me, you know, you have to learn to hate the crime and not the criminal, to look at the sin and not the sinner. And I think that changed something in me, that I began to go, okay, so maybe my art is about how one makes the world better one incremental step at a time. And I think that calmed me and, and focused me and changed my rage. And I would call it a righteous rage even uh, above it being an anger to something that I could plough into my art. And you're a lot calmer these days. I think so. I hope so. <laughs> I mean, I don't have the energy to be that rageful any, anymore at my grand age. When, uh, just before we talk about the, the three plays, yes. where does the love affair with theatre start? Well, you know, again, it's really interesting, right? Because we always try and locate these moments. And I think as an adult, something struck me. And I was probably in my 30s before I really looked back to pinpoint what it was. And it was after my plays had been 
performed internationally. I would walk into theatres in different countries. And no matter where I was, I, I would enter the space and I would get goosebumps. And I would feel at home. And it, would be, it could be in Italy, it could be in the United States, it could be in India, it could be in Senegal. Wherever I walked into that space, I just felt at home. And then, I, and, and then one starts to analyse and go, why? And, I, and it probably goes back to, I think, seeing The Taming of the Shrew at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I, I think I was about 11. School trip. School trip. And I remember being sat next to uh, our lecturer at the time. And, and it was a, I didn't realise at the time, of course, it was a seminal production of it. And what had happened, it was, you know, like there was a big fight that was staged in, in the auditorium. And I, was, I remember saying, oh my God, we've gone all the way to Stratford and, and, the, and it's not going to happen. And then, they, then that fight went onto the stage and I really was afraid then. And then the usher pulled the curtain down and then there was a, a, someone on a motorbike and the play began, and I was like, Lord have mercy, what is this thing <laughs> that I've just been, been part of? And that, that fight in the auditorium was part of the play, it you just had no idea. I had no idea. And, th- what, and you realised then that theatre could be powerful and relevant. Was I, it something that was, that was a bit sort of alien before that? Did you, think we, did you have any interest in it before Well, that? I don't think I had any interest in it at all, actually, before that. And I think what I felt at that moment was that theatre could be visceral that it could arrest me in the way that I had not been arrested before in other narratives that were on the screen. And so there was something about it that, and again, this is looking back, I didn't realise it then at 11, but there was something about that that then went straight into my bloodstream. And then I think it was when I really went, theatre is for me, is when my first wife, it sounds like I've got several, but I'm now with my second wife, took me on my birthday to the Tricycle Theatre, then called Tricycle Theatre, to see August Wilson's Joe Turner's Come and Gone. And then the whole world changed. That is, I mean, that is a seminal play. Part of a series, isn't yeah, in fact, isn't it? Yeah, the ten-play cycle of wow. August Wilson, the African-American experience of yeah. the 20th century. And it was then, I mean, literally then, that I went, OK, I want to do this. I want to write plays, and I want to do what he's doing, but I want to make it, from my perspective, from a black British perspective. Did you, when you saw um, Joe Turner, August Wilson, did you think, okay, I want to be the writer or I want to run this place or I want to be on that stage? Was it it all three? (laughs) No, I just want to want to write it. I just want want to write this history. I want to to record the history of the black British person through my lens. I I think the wanting to run an organisation, wanting to be a gatekeeper came much later. It came after being a writer, and then actually being told often, or or the perceived wisdom was that there were not any black directors who could direct my plays at the highest level. And that I found problematic, that Britain had so not given the opportunities to directors, to black directors, so that they actually didn't have the track record that I could contradict those statements with. Waiting for a, a white director to have to come and direct my play felt really odd to me, so I taught myself to direct. Not so that I could direct my own... Well, actually, yes, it was, so that I could direct my own plays. You didn't do Elmina's, though, did you? No, I didn't. I didn't. Who did I was, that? Was Angus that? Jackson. It was great. Yeah. We had a great time. And then it was after I started directing that I then started thinking, I hate complaining, but I found myself complaining about about seasons created by different artistic directors. And I, I hate the notion of it. And it was then that I went, well, rather than moan, become an AD. 
and see what it's like. And I have to tell you, the moment I became an AD, I realized how bloody hard it was, how easy it is to critique from the outside and how hard it is to actually create a season that appeals to everyone and speaks to everyone. But really, that was the genealogy. Was that... Baltimore then, that was your first job as an artistic director? Actually, my first job as an artistic director was the uh, Festival of Black Arts and Culture in Senegal in 2010. Right. I I wrote and directed the opening ceremony. That's different to to running a building, Building. which is what you did in Baltimore. My first building was Baltimore. That must have been a massive challenge as well. And also, was there a sense within that city of, who the hell's this guy? (laughs) Well, actually, one of my... It, it was a huge challenge. It was a steep learning curve, and Baltimore will forever be in my heart and in my and, and in my life. It was a mad steep learning curve, and at the time, actually, it wasn't trendy to appoint uh, writers as artistic directors. But actually, I discovered pretty soon that if I used the drafting process that I use when I'm writing, that it would aid me as a manager. It would aid me as a curator. Discuss, listen, take notes at least have three drafts before you make a decision, before you know what it is. And so I, I, I would use that technique. But it was a steep learning curve. It, it put muscle on my brain. Mm. And allowed you to step in here at the Young Vic, which had been run for a long time by David Land, yes. really successfully. Really successfully. He sort of rejuvenated. I mean, there's yeah. clues in the name with the Young Vic, isn't yeah. it? How important yeah. is it for you that the Young Vic should be about young audiences? A couple of things. You're absolutely right. David um, had run this theatre for 18 years brilliantly and, and had really put it on the map. And so, you know, there was a lot of pressure coming in. <laughs> you know, that, that, that what am I going to do? And I think you're absolutely right. The, the clue is in the name. What we When we think about young, we often just think about school children. But actually, when I think about young, I think about the energy of youth. What is the energy of youth? Well, the energy of youth is to keep on pushing, mm. to run at everything, to redefine, to understand that actually your job is to take the baton and create something different. And so actually, I I, I relish the pressure and the challenge of redefining what young means to me. Access is everything. And redefining access. David said a really beautiful thing to me really on, this was before I applied for the job. I said, David, why would I apply for this job? You've done everything that I would do. And he said, yeah, we have much commonality. But I reckon that if I walked into your house and you walked into mine, the art on the wall would be different. And then I did it. So let's look at the plays. Yeah. The play, let's start with the play I wrote. You, there's a lot to choose from. Yeah. I love those ones, Elmina's yeah. and Fix Up, Statement of Regret as well. Yeah. Which one are you going to go for? It's going to be my very first play called A Bitter Herb. When I write a play, after it's been staged, I, I, I forget about it. And I, and I really do mean I forget about it. I literally can't remember the plot. I can't remember characters. It's literally gone. And I think maybe there's some psychological explanation that I probably just jettison it so that I can can keep moving forward. And so about two years ago, Rada was doing a production of my very first play. I don't remember. I just didn't remember anything about it. But I was really nervous. I'd just opened the Bob Marley musical at Birmingham and 
And I, on my last day before flying back to Baltimore, I was heading to see it. So, so students at RADA were yes, putting students, this on? Yes. And you were going to go along I was and, go and watch it? And watch it. And, uh, <laughs> and it so happened, actually, that when I got there, I was sat next to uh, an actor friend of mine, Cobner Holbrook-Smith. And I was, I was nervous. And I, I got to the end of the play, and I cried all the way through. And I cried because, actually, I saw my mother, my departed mother, in the lead character. Though it really wasn't about her, but I saw her. And I saw a younger me. I would hear lines and I'd go, I wrote that? I would go, you were not afraid How to write that? How uh, I was about 32. And, and I was about, um, yeah, between 30 and 32. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that I was that bold and that I was that fearless. And I realised how um, compromised I had become as an older man, how possibly fearful I had come, mm. how possibly fear had reduced some of the, the anger that we were speaking about earlier on, how age and compromise had somehow stopped me um, speaking angry truths in my work, possibly. Age had smoothed your edges. Age had smoothed my edges. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So let's just give us a sense of Bitter Herb. So you're 32 when you wrote it. Mm. Quick run through the plot. What happens? Again, I'm, I'm not really going to remember very much. But basically, it was, it was written off the impulse. Stephen Lawrence had just happened. It was about a mother uh, and a family who had lost their eldest son after she had moved from a quintessentially black area into a white suburb. Having moved herself from the quote-unquote dangers of a black environment into a white environment, losing her firstborn and the, the effects of that on herself and the family in terms of mental health. That, that was roughly what, what it was. So it was really moving. I, I called my children and I said, if you want to see your father before he was your father, go and see this play. So you were surprised by what you were seeing. I was surprised. And moved, clearly. And 
you genuinely couldn't remember what happened. No, so, I couldn't. So therefore, if I ask you, so where were you when you wrote it? Do you remember that moment when you suddenly went, I've got the character, I know what I'm doing with this? <laughs> no. It's all I, gone. I couldn't, I, I couldn't tell you what computer I wrote it on. I couldn't tell you where I wrote it. I, 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 I know I don't remember anything. I just remember the actors in the original production and sitting at the opening night just watching it on the stage at, uh, on the Theatre Royal. But no, I, I, don't, I don't remember very much else. But that's really interesting. You, a couple of years ago, you see it again for the oh. first time oh. in, what, what was it? It like, had been like 18 years or something. 18 years. Yeah. yeah. And, has it, and it's taught you something about yourself. It taught me something about myself. The very next day, I went back to Baltimore and I resigned. I, I literally got on the plane on the 25th. I can remember it. I walked into centre stage. We had just created a, a wonderful new theatre, we'd renovated it, put new, two new theatres in, a play that I'd been working on was on in the main stage and it was doing really well and, and I looked around and I went, I'm done here and I need to follow my instincts. And was I, that about having seen Bitter It was. And what I know would have happened had I not seen it at that moment is I would have walked in to centre stage and I'd have gone, oh, this is great, and now I can play. And then something inside me would have said, you don't think it's time to leave? And I'd have said, no. Mm-hmm. The compromised me would have said no, and I'd have gone, what about your income? What about all of those things? And I would have gone, you're in America. And, and I know that I would have probably have just gone, look, be, be pragmatic, qualms. Because what, from what I remember of that time, it was a big deal when you went. Yeah. I remember seeing you before you went and going, yeah. wow, this yeah. is big, man. This yeah. is like a big deal. Yeah, and then you came back, but there was no other job lined up, was no, there? No, no, That's why I'm saying that Bitter Herb absolutely made me challenge notions of, uh, of complacency or compromise, that I did not have a job. I remember my children saying to me, why would you do this? Why would you leave? What are you going to go to? Family members just being surprised, everyone being really surprised. The first question everybody would say when I resigned was, what are you going to? And I said, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just going to, I'm going to see. I didn't know whether I was going to stay in America, move to New York or come back home. I had no idea. And what did that feel like? Was that excitement or was that a worry? Did you at any moment think, well, what have I done? No, no, no. I, I, when I describe myself as a writer, I, I talk about it in terms of it having taught me things about myself, not just putting things out into the world. And my sense was... You don't know what you're going to do. You're right. Jobs will be offered, and, and, and some beautiful jobs were offered in the States. But then the young Vic got offered. The board chairman had said to me in a pre-interview, listen, the only thing that matters to me is that the young Vic remains socially relevant. And as soon as he said those words, I knew that I wanted this job. Bigger question, how is British theatre doing at the moment in terms of social relevance and I'm talking accessibility getting young people through but also getting a mixed diversity in terms of the audience and also those people on stage I I think we're doing well but most importantly I think what the me too movement has done has actually just made you know gender the thing that is no longer oh my god we really should do this shouldn't we we just know that we now must we must look at gender parity we must look at at um, equality we must look at making sure that we attract a new kind of audience who are expecting a new kind of art the the canon has to be investigated through that lens is it still fit for purpose can we still do the same plays in the same way and that's a brilliant scary but exciting time to be an ad mm. when you're actually throwing everything up 
in the air and you're saying, now, how do we still keep these classics relevant? How do we develop new plays so that actually they come from the different voices of our community, not just a singular gender or a singular race? It's frightening i'm not gonna lie john it's it's really frightening but it can have an effect yeah it's exciting i mean one of the best things i've seen in the last couple of years was one night in miami a play by an american player i can't remember his name but i mean kemp powers yeah Yeah. kemp powers and you directed it not here it was at the donmar and it was that night of when cassius clay became muhammad ali he just beaten Sonny liston yeah and in a hotel room a motel room he was there that night with malcolm x yeah with the American Jim footballer Brown. Jim Brown yep. and Sam Cooke. Yep. What a meeting. Yeah. And I thought that night that was really interesting when I saw that play because I looked around and the audience was different. Yes. That was, a, a you know, in terms of ethnicity, yeah. that was a, a tangible effect, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it, it was. And actually, I, I remember that at the National, actually, with Elmina's. Yeah. That, that actually it was really important to to the executives at the time, the two Nicks, Nick Starr, Nick Heitner, that actually that the audience feel as connected to the material in a visceral way. And and it it helped me as a leader. There was a really interesting thing that the two Nicks did. At that point, I wasn't even thinking that I'd be a director, might as well an artistic director. But I remember they came to me on the opening night and they said, listen, our audience is probably going to be overwhelmingly white. We'd like to give you 50 tickets to give to people that will connect to this material on a, in a cultural fashion. And what it meant was that some of this staff who traditionally always came to the Cottesloe, the then Cottesloe, um, for the opening night, they couldn't get their tickets. So it was a big management decision. And I profoundly believe, had they not made that decision, that I would not be sitting here where I am now, or Mina might not have been the success that it was. Mm. Because actually it meant that the critics were sat in an environment where people responded to the play because they understood it from the inside. Let's move on to the next play, the play I wish I'd written. I've got no idea of your choices. We should say this. I didn't know you were going to pick Peter Herb. I was sort of thinking it probably going to be Almeida's yeah, no. maybe statement. Um, statement would have come second. Yeah, that was a good idea. Yeah, though, statement would have come The play I wish I'd written. Now, you've already mentioned August yeah. Wilson. I would have probably put money that it would have been one of his fences, maybe. or no. It's actually a narrative. It's a, it's a screenplay that I wish I'd written. Right. And it's uh, Billy Elliot. Really? Lee Hall? Lee Hall. And when I saw that, I remember looking at that film and going, why didn't I write that? <laughs> why didn't I write that? The error was my error. At the time, I was at stage school, so doing ballet and doing tap during that era that Billy Elliot was set in. And I was on the front lines in the Southall riots where the police were literally breaking through police lines with my younger brother while Blair Peach, a little way afterwards, was 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 about to be killed when the NF were coming in to Southall Town Hall. And you were there. I then. was there. I was there as a child, as a 12-year-old. Between, I always say everything's 12, between mm. 11 and 13. I, I was there. And so when I looked at Billy Elliot, set in a working class, environment with with a struggle against the establishment and the police being the front lines of that with riot shields while doing art and doing ballet i went (laughs) i went i can't believe that i didn't write that because it was so brilliant 
And the first time I met Lee Hall, we were at a dinner party. Sorry, that sounds a little too what you call it. But <laughs> Come on, you've got to admit these yeah, things. You go to yeah, dinner parties, you're part of the party. establishment. Yeah, now, that's on. very true. It is very true. But I was at a party and, and I'd never met him before. And we were eating for about an hour and a half. And then I just felt that I had to tell him. I just had to say, Lee, you wrote the piece that I wish I had written. And he'd written it brilliantly. Interesting. I remember seeing Billy Elliot at the Cannes Film Festival. Wow. It wasn't called Billy Elliot. Oh, really? It was called Dancer. Wow, I saw I a film called that. Dancer, <laughs> and it was the very first screening. And I was there. I went to see Stephen straight afterwards. Did an interview with him. Wow. We were caught, we were talking about a film called Dancer. They changed the name because Lars von Trier had that same year the film Dancer in the Dark, which went oh. on to win the Palme d'Or. And I think it was they made the decision there and then they couldn't have two films called Dancer. Dancer. Isn't that interesting? Oh, it's brilliant. I love that story. I love that story. I, I, you know, it, you can't think of it in any other way than Billy Elliot, right? Yeah, absolutely. About the central character, about this boy's struggle. I also remember, actually, I mean, this is a sort of sideline, talking to Stephen, we're in his hotel room, we're doing an interview for the radio. About a couple of hours after that very first screening, and by the time I'd got there, he'd already had messages sent through from distribution companies, you know, offers of free gifts, trips here or there. They just knew, the production companies, the distributors mainly, who were saying, this is going to be a hit. Yeah, it was beautifully constructed. It was beautifully written, but it's the heart at the centre of it was just so... uh, it, It was so intoxicating. I remember looking at it and just going, not with a sense of jealousy, just going, why didn't I have that idea? I've lived it. The good thing is, you're still young. Thank you so much, relatively speaking. Well, we're the the same age, so I I like to think we're still young. So you've got a lot of time ahead of you, a lot of plays still to be written. Um, I mean, do you think, just before we talk about the play I'm writing, how far ahead are you thinking? Do you have a whole lot of issues of themes, of characters accumulating in your head that will one day hit the stage? Yeah, I I think in my mind, because the main thrust of my of my life is being an AD, so the curatorial part of my art, that, that I have to really plan. I have to kind of go, okay, so the Christmas holidays is when I'm going to write this, and the summer holidays is when I'm going to write the other. And so I, I probably have the next three plays in my mind mm. that I want to do. Whether I'll get to them or not, I don't know. But, but yeah, I have the next three. Okay, so here we go. The play I'm writing, what's happening? The play I'm writing right now is a piece created by Idris Elba and I called Tree, which is going to be on here at the Young Vic. And literally yesterday at 10.30, I pressed send and, and sent out the second draft. It's inspired from Idris's album, Me Mandela. And he kind of came to me and said, look, I made this album. It was while I was in grief. I went to South Africa mm. to help get over my father's death and, and I created this this album and, and it helped me. I absolutely related to the grief of losing a parent when he first came to me because of my close relationship with my mother and her having passed 14 years ago. And my father passed while writing it. And so it, it has a lot of resonance for me. And, and what happens in it actually is that a young quintessentially black British boy or a mixed race black British boy his mother dies and he goes to Bloemfontein to his white Africana grandmother that he's never met in order to uh, fulfill one of the wishes of his of his dying mother and when he does that he comes face to face with the South Africa that 
many are negotiating now, not the land of the giant of Mandela, but a world where Mandela actually is not necessarily seen in some quarters as the hero that we see him as today, where people are looking at land and saying, why have we 25 years after apartheid had died? Why do we still not own the land and a minority still does? And so really, it's a play set to music, to thumping South African house music that's looking at, at land and the cost of oppression. And, and how we move through grief to a sense of, of healing. And this is at Manchester International yeah, Festival as well, correct. isn't it? opens at Manchester and, and then, then, comes, and then here. comes here. As I said, I'm, I'm mid-writing it now. <laughs> Literally, I was on the computer before you came in uh, getting some notes. It's really fun. I say fun, that's a lie. I'm going to take that back. <laughs> that actually, I know when I have to write because I get into a bad mood because something's waiting to come out. Mm. And then once I've got to the end, I feel like, I feel good. So today, I actually feel really great. When I get my notes back tomorrow, I may feel a bit differently. But right now, I feel really good. And I'm really pleased, John. I'm really pleased, actually, that and grateful that I can be a generative artist in terms of the writing, a, a, an interpretive artist in terms of directing, and a curatorial artist in terms of ADing. I'm really, I'm really blessed to be able to do all of those things. It's, it's a bit taxing on the old time. But, you know, I mean, who could have dreamt when I started that I would be able uh, and would be allowed to kind of do my art in this way, in this capacity? Um, you know, I feel really blessed. Kwame, it's so good to talk to you. It's always good to talk to you. Congratulations. I mean, there is so much um, we could continue to talk about, but I know you have a laptop open somewhere. (laughs) I do. A play to finish. (laughs) There's probably a play to cast. Yes. And uh, And a play to find for the next season. A play to find for the next season. Good luck with it all. Thank you. Great to see you again. Bless you. you enjoyed Kwame Kweyama, have a listen to the other episodes featuring the likes of Paul Weller, Hayley Atwell, Tom O'Dell, Jonathan Yeo, Lucy Preble, Guy Garvey, and there are many more on the way. Please do rate and review these three. It helps other people find the series. And subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Also, have a look at the website. We've got more information about all of the guests. There are photographs, videos, uh, previews of forthcoming episodes. We're on Twitter and Instagram, of course. These Three is produced and presented by me, John Wilson, in association with Analog Folk. Thanks for listening. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. 
Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.